Tragically, over the last week, there were five passengers who died in a deep-sea submersible accident on a uh, vessel called the Titan. And as this Titan was in the North Atlantic Sea, uh, it was uh, submerged and it was descending to go visit the ruins of the Titanic. Uh, And as it was making its initial descent, uh, a breach of the pressure in the hole created an extreme, an intense, and an instantaneous implosion, killing all of those on board. Now, after uh, some investigation and some research, it comes to find out that when it comes to this experimental deep-sea exploration vessel, that this vessel had been built outside of standard regulations, that it had been built outside of the certified construction manuals of the normal deep-sea submersible vehicles. And although there have been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of successful trips of various deep-sea submersibles to the Titanic and other very deep places under the sea, this particular vehicle, uh, because it was constructed with an unregulated material and standard, an uncertified standard, uh, it was not able successfully to withstand the extreme pressure that was put on the outside of that hole and led to the demise, tragically, of five souls. The principle of the Titanic, however, extends, or the Titan, that is the name of the submersible, Uh, The tragedy of the Titan, it covers more than just deep-sea exploration, you understand. This idea that that through unregulated means and uncertified construction of of many things, things have come to ruin, uh, and not the least of these would be the marriage. You see, we live uh, in a culture, and it's been permeated throughout culture and society for thousands of years, uh, that we should be able, and this is at least our, our mindset and worldview, that we should be able to create and experimentally do our own thing within marriage. We want to build our own marriages according to our own regulations and our own standards. Um, but when we do that, we forget that God has created regulated, certified instructions on how marriages can handle high-pressure from both outside and inside. And if we will build our marriages, unlike the Titan, if we would build our marriages on the regulated instruction of God's word and the certified design of God and his original intent for marriage, we're going to find that our marriages can deal with a lot of pressure, extreme pressure that all marriages created and and lived out outside of the regulation of God and the certified construction of God are going to instantaneously implode, bringing to demise many, many, many marriages. And if we look at the landscape of marriage, you see the debris of fallen marriages across all areas of our world and our culture. But what we hope to do as we jump into the text this morning is to, by the end of it, see many marriages intact, fully functioning the way that God designed them, even in the midst of great and extreme pressure from the inside and the outside. Simply, if we don't want our marriages meeting tragic endings, we must take something very seriously, and that is that we must have a personal commitment to God's original intent for marriage. That's really the main point this morning for us is that A personal commitment to God's original intent for marriage is a necessary component of faithfully following Jesus. And you recognize something here that we're transcending just the individual marriage covenants. 
whether you're single in here or whether you're married, the recognition of faithfully following Jesus includes a careful, consistent commitment to God's original intent for marriage. Because as we recognize God's original intent for marriage, it is going to change in every way how we live even as a single. It doesn't just impact the married couples in this room. It impacts everyone and the steps we take in our daily life until marriage and even gives us direct instructions in each step that we live within our marriage. And that is as we jump into the text this morning, which I'd encourage you to do so, turn open to Matthew 5.31, we're going to address, address the topic of divorce. And as we jump into the topic of divorce, I find that it is best to talk about divorce by talking about marriage. If we're going to understand anything about divorce, we must understand God's design for marriage in the same way that if I'm going to understand any real thing about the topic of death, I must first understand what's meant by life. If I'm going to understand what is the means of the sanctity of life, why do I fight for the sanctity of life? Why do I fight for, the, for us understanding that God has a purpose in our lives? And why not death? I have to first understand what life is, the importance of life, before I can truly understand the significance of death. In the same way, if we're going to understand anything about divorce, we must understand first the significance of marriage. And that's exactly what Jesus does in the text uh, that we will look at this morning. And as you're turning there, I don't intend to give a complete picture of everything the Bible says about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Uh, we will get in months ahead into Matthew chapter 19, Lord willing. And as we get into Matthew chapter 19, you see Jesus having a more detailed conversation with the Pharisees that we'll touch on a little bit this morning about divorce and remarriage. And so, Lord willing, in the future, we'll take weeks on the topic of divorce and remarriage. But it's sufficient this morning as we look at the text to bring us to the intended meaning and accomplishment of this text, which is how Jesus drives everyone back when they talk about divorce to the original intent of marriage, to the original design of marriage. Because of that, and the brevity and the limited scope of this sermon, you may have questions, which is why we have the QR code there on the front of that piece of paper for you, because we would like to help you in as much as we can answer questions that you may have that you would have from this sermon. And we pray that through the bold truth in this sermon and uh, also the amazing amount of love and grace Christ has for us, we'll be able to both address our sin and be able to move forward with great faith and encouragement uh, in the will of God. With that being said, I would love to have you put your eyes on the text in Matthew chapter 5, starting there in verse 31. Jesus said that it was also said that whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And so you notice before this, Jesus says, it has been said, and he takes a direct quotation from uh, the law of Moses, uh, particularly in the last couple of sermons from, the, from uh, Exodus 20, Exodus 19, Exodus 20, uh, the, uh, the Ten Commandments. And here, we don't have him in Exodus, we have... Uh, Jesus uh, addressing a comment made in Deuteronomy 24. And this is significant because Jesus saying, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Because rabbis have taken a comment made in Deuteronomy and have twisted it and made it mean something that the text was never intended to mean. And so we're about to watch Jesus correcting a misinterpretation of a text in Deuteronomy 24. 
to understand the context of Deuteronomy 24, here's what you need to know. Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4 simply did this. It discussed and prohibited a man from taking back his ex-wife after her second husband had died. You see, that's pretty simple, right? It's not. It's a little complicated, but it's pretty simple, right? That a man was prohibited by law to take back his ex-wife after her second husband had been, had been deceased, had died. So Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 is simply stating uh, the truth about, hey, here's what, here, if, as divorce has already happened, and these things have already taken place, sin has already torn apart a marriage, and death has taken away another, you aren't allowed to take back, you're not allowed to take back that wife who has been married before. A lot of reasons for that. Uh, scholars suggest there's financial appropriation, a tide uh, within the bride price and all those things, and so men could actually manipulate the system and uh, find money by ill means. Uh, we're also wanting to protect the rights of, of these women, making sure they're taken care of and not manipulated by the system. All those things, scholars suggest that those are all reasons for it. What we do know for sure is that God was committed to the sexual purity of his people, and it would, it would seem sexually misappropriated for a man to send his wife away with a divorce and her go have sexual relationships with another man in the marriage covenant, and then after that has died, then go back to the first man. That kind of cross-contamination of the sexual realities of the people of Israel was something that God uh, would not approve of. So we can at least say, we know one for sure, historically, uh, scholars would suggest there are other reasons tied to that. However, what we can say for sure is we know that God had a very good reason to have Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 in place to protect both the marriage covenant and protect women. And here's another reason why they needed to protect women. And this is why you see even in the text uh, when it talks about whoever divorces his wife, give her a certificate of divorce. And whoever divorces his wife, except from the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And although we know we're talking about men and women both here, it seems like there's a heavy pronouncement on the female side of the party here, which is true in a sense, but can't be farther from the truth when it comes to society and culture. And here's why. Christ spends a lot of his time protecting the life of the women here because here's a true reality of a woman in the first century. If a woman was not married to her husband and, and he sent her away, what did she have to do? She had to get remarried, right? In order to have land, in order to have the means to be taken care of, any woman who was sent away by her husband, unless she has a certificate of divorce, doesn't have any right legally to get remarried uh, because they would assume that she was still married. And so this whole idea of the divorce certificate, this whole idea of this talking within the feminine context, it shows us that women had to be protected. Women, in Scripture, are always in the context of being protected by husbands, and even in creation, as God had given Eve to Adam as the protector and her as the helper. We recognize that even in this text here, that we have, even though it's talking about divorced woman, it's because... Simply, if a woman was divorced, she had to get remarried in order to live. And so therefore, we're spending time talking about the divorce certificate while also recognizing that sexual immorality is often in the context of the female because she always needed to get remarried. Right? Maybe the man didn't have to get remarried, but the woman always had to get remarried. And so we're forcing women into sexual immorality and adultery, and that's sinful. Do you get the point there? So that's what Jesus is addressing here, and even you see that happening in Deuteronomy 24 as well. All that being said, we'll jump into Deuteronomy 24 one in a, in a little bit. 
but we want to recognize something in verse 32, that Jesus is going to do more than give another rabbinical interpretation. And that's really the problem in Deuteronomy 24, is throughout the history of Israel, even in the Mishnah, which is the Jewish oral tradition, you find there are rabbis, teachers of the law, who are taking the Old Testament and, and taking Scripture and making their own spin and interpretation of it and passing it out as the law and application for everyone to live out. And Jesus, right, in lieu of creating another interpretation of the law, says, I'm not going to create an interpretation from the law. I'm bringing everything back to the original intent of the law. And so we have Jesus doing that here in verse 32 because he's bringing up an interpretation of the law in 31, and in 32, he says, let me tell you the truth. I say to you, you may say that give your wife a divorce certificate and let her go, but I say this, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So we have these rabbis who are spinning the law and making it really easy for men to send away their wives so they can go do whatever they want and for women to be uh, sexually involved in, in multiple relationships throughout their life. And Jesus is saying, no, no, we're going to bring this back to God's original intent. And here's God's original intent, that anyone who divorces their spouse other than the grounds of sexual immorality caused both parties to commit adultery. And so far from allowing divorce for any reason like the rabbis are trying to do, Jesus restricts divorce and remarriage to a very narrow allowance, and that is sexual infidelity. To, de- to, de- di- ugh, to dive and dig deeper into that, there we go, it's important to recognize something about history, especially in the first century and even B.C. and the second century after Christ, is Jews, rabbis, and Pharisees and most of the nation of Israel with the exception of a very few amount of people, a very few amount of people, and we'll get to those in a moment, they exercised the readily and freely ability to divorce for any reason. That was, that was the majority view of that time, that you can get divorced for any and every reason. And we know that to be true. It's even recorded in the Gatine, which is the Mishnah, right? It's part of the Mishnah, which is the Jewish oral tradition, right? Which is what the rabbis would have taught, and it's what was recorded about, of what they have said. And here's what they say in the Gatine, right? In chapter 9, verse 10, you have two parties of rabbis. You have the Shammai and Hillel. Shammai and Hillel were the last names of the two very famous rabbis who took, uh, who took Scripture and who interpreted it, and they often landed on complete opposite sides of the interpretation, which caused a lot of problems, you would imagine. But here's what the house of Shammai says. A man should divorce his wife only because he has found grounds for it in unchastity or, or sexual misconduct or sexual, sexual infidelity or adultery. And he comes to this view. You'll find this very interesting as we keep continue going along. He finds this to be the case since it is said in Deuteronomy 24 verse 1, because he has found in her indecency in anything. And so as he reads Deuteronomy 24 chapter, chapter 24 verse 1, He says, because Deuteronomy 24 says he has found in her some indecency in anything, he then believes that that means grounds for divorce only in unchastity. Well, where does he get that? Well, you have to understand a little bit of the Hebrew. And there is a really obscure Hebrew term in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, that is used twice in all of Scripture. And one time is here, and it is the term Urwat Debar. And Urwat Debar is a word that, literally means the nakedness of a thing. 
The nakedness of a thing is what it literally means. And so you can see how Shammai, and he's interpreting this to mean and to understand it as it was written to say, well, a man can give a divorce certificate to his wife if there is a nakedness of a thing interpreted as, as she is being sexually unfaithful in her marriage covenant. All right, that's pretty good, right? That makes a little bit of sense biblically. Now there's the other group, the Hillel group, that says this. Even if she spoils the dish, if she burns your dinner, you can send her away and divorce her. And here, this is the, you laugh, that's the majority view of that time. And you want to bet that's the majority view of this time. So we laugh, but this is the prevailing notion of the idea of divorce in our culture. And here's, here's their rationale. Notice the parallelism. Even if she spoils the dish, he can get divorced, since it is said, because he has found in her indecency in anything. Isn't that just what Shammai said? But they come to the, a complete different understanding of the law, which is important for us to understand in this whole conversation of Jesus talking to them about, you've missed it. You've missed the heart of the law. So you have those two parties that are very popular, but even shortly after the time of Christ, so around the first century AD, you have a very popular rabbinical figure named Akiba. And this is what he says about the same exact text. Right? You have Shammai who says only in grounds of unchastity. You have Hillel that says even if she spoils the dish. And you have Akiba who says this, even if he found someone else prettier than she. God's standard for marriage and the commitment of it. What men do, and what I mean by man, I mean humankind, right? What we do to the marriage covenant God created, we make it so low that it has no significance and no meaning, and we can never connect it to God's original design because we have, in unregulated and uncertified ways, made marriage about what we want to make it about instead of what God made it about. And because of that, you see the catastrophe of marriage across the scape of our world. And the goal that Jesus is getting to is the same one that the preacher of the word is going to get to, is to restore God's permanent design for marriage. And that's point number one on your outline. You need to write this down. We need to recover God's permanent design for marriage. If we're going to understand anything about divorce, we first need to understand God's permanent design for marriage. Jesus spends time in the Gospels, over and over again, talking about the context, the concept and the context of divorce and remarriage. And one I told you we would look at briefly this morning is Matthew 19. So as you've written down that point, if you would, flip over to Matthew 19 in your text. Matthew 19 is the pinnacle of the New Testament's uh, on the topic of divorce and remarriage. It's a very detailed, much more detailed than uh, the narrow content that we're given here in verses 31 and 32. We will look at more deeply in the future, but here, just put your eyes on that as we read through it. Starting in verse 1, Jesus had finished these sayings, and he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed many there. And Pharisees come up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Did you recognize, did you recognize the familiarity of that, that question? 
it matches the context that we were just talking about, about the two-party system and their beliefs about divorce, right? We recognize something here because of the Mishnah, because understanding the context of the conversations that were happening during that time, that the Pharisees aren't asking a random question. They didn't pull this out of their back pocket and say, you know, if I ever had a rabbi in front of me, I always thought I'd ask him this question. Instead, he's saying, no, 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 this is a real thing that rabbis debate on and has, has real influence in our world, and so he's going to test Jesus with this. And he's testing Jesus by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Remember, that's the majority view, that we should be able to divorce for any reason. And he is going to Jesus publicly, knowing that most of the people in earshot of Christ exercises any cause divorce. And so he's trying to cause an opportunity for a riot and for chaos. What does Jesus do? What a great rabbi, a perfect teacher, the God of the universe does. He answers it in a perfect way. He says this in verse 4, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Something interesting that happens here uh, is the Pharisee is going back to Deuteronomy again. He's like, listen, Deuteronomy, that's pretty old, man. Deuteronomy, this is what's been said a long time ago, a couple thousand years before. So what do you say about this that has happened thousands of years ago? And you know what Jesus does? He said, let's take this back to the beginning. Let's take this back to when there was no sin. Let's take this back to where when God created this whole thing, it was for a purpose and for a reason. And let's get back to that before we address anything about you getting divorced. And that's exactly what he does in verse 4 and following. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So there's our rationale for male, one man, one woman, because that's how God created them. Okay. Then in verse 5, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and he shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Leave and cleave. That's where you get those terms. That's covenantal language. So even in the very beginning of Scripture, it's not just that God is describing what we would identify now as marriage. He is actually instituting legal, not, not legal maybe in the governmental sense, but this legal reality that it is a leaving and a cleaving. It is a contractual reality even in Genesis. Leaving and cleaving is covenantal language. So God, in the book of Genesis, creates the marriage by using covenantal language of leaving and cleaving. I'm leaving my family, I'm cleaving to my wife, which is a whole other sermon with in-laws. We'll talk about that some other day, perhaps. But here in the text. So, verse 6, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Do you see that? They ask a question about divorce. Jesus gives them the answer about marriage, which is the problem so often in our culture is we often only want to have a conversation about divorce and we don't want to have the conversation about what is God's permanent design for marriage. And so therefore, they want to ask a follow-up question. So let's look at it. Verse 7. The Pharisees, they said to him, "Then why then did Moses command one to give her a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So he, he's then appealing back. The Pharisees are appealing back to, well, again, putting Moses and Jesus against each other, or at least attempting to. So then why did Moses let us do this? And Jesus said, or they actually say, command us to do this. And Jesus said, it's because of your hardness of heart. 
there's been a theme in the Sermon on the Mount thus far, hasn't there? That all the things that we've been talking about here, these outward manifestations of our lives, actually say a lot about the heart. And the transformation that needs to happen is not outward conformity, but inward transformation that would then produce an outward manifestation of the holiness that is now in you in Christ. And in the same way, I love what Jesus does in the way of saying this. You keep wanting divorce, and it's just showing you the hardness of your heart. Because Pharisees prided themselves on righteousness. And Jesus is saying, you even wanting any cause divorce is proving over and over again that you do not understand God's design, nor his heart, nor his law, or obedience to him at all. You know nothing about the God of the Bible, is what Jesus is in effect saying to the Pharisees. And he says, you, uh, Moses has given you an allowance for divorce because of your hardness of heart. And that's what he says in the rest of verse 8. When you, when you look, if you look at it, you can read. It says, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. You notice that. I love that. Moses commanded is what they, they say. But Jesus said, no, no, Moses allowed you. It's an allowance. And so divorce is not commanded in Scripture anywhere, even in the most extreme cases. It's an allowance based on the hardness of heart of people, based on the sin nature of people, based on you submitting to the flesh and not the word of God. But it is an allowance in certain extreme cases, but not God's design and not God's ideal and not God's desire. God's desire is always reconciliation and redemption, even in the most difficult cases. Why? Because if you're anything like me, when it comes to your relationship with God, you were the most difficult case. And God redeemed the most difficult case in your relationship with God. And if he can deal with the most difficult case in you and me and our relationship with him, he can deal with the most difficult cases of our relationships with others. And then in verse 9, he goes on to say, It was not so from the beginning. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Which I love this one because we, we talked a lot in the beginning of the sermon about, there's a lot often talking about the woman's part, but here it doesn't even talk about really the woman other than saying if you divorce your wife except for sexual immorality and you marry another one, you commit adultery. He just puts it right in the front. You're the adulterer. You can't pass this on. You are culpable for your sin. You are sinning against God. I love the way that Jesus makes this clear that sin is the problem. The heart of man is the problem. And it's clear when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we talk about anger and we talk about lust and we talk about divorce. Jesus always pointing back to you're upset about anger, you're upset about lust, you're upset about divorce, but the real problem is you should be upset about sin. You should be upset about the catastrophe and the destruction of the sinful heart that is in rebellion against God, in which Christ has come to not only just quell the rebellion, but to bring the rebellion to a stop and bring conformity to the law of God through the transformation of the heart of people. And if we have people with transformed hearts, we have marriages that are transformed. When we have hearts that are transformed, we have relationships that are restored. We have lust that is eradicated. And we have anger that finds its proper ending in repentance and reconciliation. But a heart change is required nonetheless if we want to keep the commandment of marriage, which it is a commandment. Right? We read that already in Genesis. It is an institution created by God. It is a covenantal reality that we all have in front of us. And we are not going to be able to keep the commandment of marriage without a new heart. Because we are always going to be tempted to leave when it's hard. That's just the nature of humanity. When it gets hard, we want to leave. 
Or the other problem is maybe it's getting hard because the other person won't repent from their sin, which is also a reality in marriage. Your life may be hard because your partner wants to live in sin and they don't want to repent. What's the problem? Sin, right? We want to say, well, they're the problem. No, no, no. Sin's the problem. We deal with the sin and we deal with the problem. We're just dealing with people and outward manifestations of these realities. You're never dealing with the problem. You got to deal with the heart if we're going to deal with the real problem. And it's that new heart that's necessary if we're going to display the covenant-keeping love of God displayed through Christ. we got to have a new heart if we're going to display this covenant in our marriage. As a matter of fact, Scripture talks a lot about us and using our marriage, understanding that our marriage is actually a reflection of the nature and character of God in Christ and his relationship with the church. And so what I'd love to do is show you how biblically faithful marriages parallel our relationship to Jesus in at least three ways. Okay, these three ways are permanence of that relationship, the holiness in that relationship, and the forgiveness that characterizes that relationship. When we think about our marriage to our spouse, we recognize the permanence of our marriage to our spouse, the holiness and the sanctity of that relationship, how it's set apart how even the whole idea of marriage is I'm brought into union with one another, forsaking all others. So there is a set-apartness in that relationship that characterizes our relationship with Christ. And there is a forgiveness built into that relationship that characterizes all facets of that relationship. We understand how that relates to our marriage, don't we? Well, let's understand, even as Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 11, how these things represent Christ. 2 Corinthians 11 Verses 2 through 3, you can jot that reference down. This is what Paul says to the church in Corinth in his second letter to them. He says in chapter 11, verse 2, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband. So Paul's saying, I betrothed you to one husband. I have come and I have proclaimed to you a gospel message, and I have brought you in a procession to your husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So even here in the text, we have Paul paralleling and using the marriage as a, an analogy to describe marriage, to say, as a husband and wife come together, and as you have the holiness and the permanence that characterizes marriage, so I have brought you and led you to Christ that you would be presented holy to him, set apart for him, and he would be your betrothed. He would be your husband. Verse 3. But here's, here's the problem that Paul is running into in this analogy. But I'm afraid that as the, certain, the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Here Paul is saying, my, 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 I'm afraid here because your relationship with Christ does not reflect even a biblical marriage, much less a faithful relationship to Christ. You are being deceived and you're being led astray from a pure devotion to Christ. Because if you want a pure devotion to Christ, it needs to look like a pure devotion to marriage, which means it's permanent, it's based on holiness, and it's characterized by forgiveness. In all these things, you're not even characterizing your own relationship with Christ. And so we're saying that not only would you not even be married in this kind of situation, you wouldn't be married with this understanding. You can't be married with Christ with this flawed understanding. You are presented to Christ in a permanent relationship. Our relationship with Christ is permanent. Can you lose your relationship with Christ once you genuinely have it? You can't. In the same way, our marriage is meant to reflect the permanent reality of our relationship with Christ. 
in the same way that we relate to Christ through holiness. Think about this. What, is, what does scripture say? You need to pursue the holiness in which, without which no one will see God. The recognition of the requisite for holiness in your life is paramount if you want to be in a relationship with God. That's why we trust in Christ for a righteousness that we ourselves cannot attain apart from him. Justification. Sanctification, too, is that's why we pursue holiness without which, as we're not pursuing holiness, we're not going to be in intimate relationship with Christ even here. And so we recognize that if we're going to be in right relationship with Christ, there's got to be a pursuit of holiness in our relationship with Christ. We've got to be following him. We've got to be in submission to him. In the same way, in our marriages, we have to stop entertaining, pursuing outside things, and to recognize that our marriage is a place for holiness and sanctity. My thoughts and my mind and my intentions need to be fully and wholly devoted to my marriage. Can you think about that? We just stop right there. If, if couples... Thoughts and intentions and hearts were focused in on their marriage, would we even have divorce? No. Right? But the hard-heartedness of people makes us live exactly the opposite. My heart and my intention, my motivations aren't towards my marriage. It's about other things. Often it's about me. It's about outside things. It's about the outside pressures of the world pressing in. And I'm more interested in those than the sanctity and the holiness of my marriage. And therefore your marriage implodes. Forgiveness, the third one, right? This is an easy gospel connection, isn't it? That our entire relationship with Christ is based on the reality of forgiveness. And there is no one who has sinned more against God than you. And there is no one who has caused more problems than you. And yet, you've caused more problems for yourself. You've separated yourself from God. But yet, God has come to redeem that and forgive you. You have been a problem. I have been a problem. But yet, Christ says... Beyond that problem, I'm going to give a solution that although you have a problem, I'm going to make a way for forgiveness by me coming and substituting myself for you on the cross. Therefore, that I would take place of you and I would give my righteousness to you that before God, you would be holy and blameless and without blemish. You want to talk about forgiveness? Or you want to talk about the reality of forgiveness in our relationship with God? Our marriage is supposed to reflect the same nature of forgiveness that whether we have created small grievances or even the greatest grievances possible that we recognize that the marriage covenant is supposed to reflect the character and the nature of Christ and his relationship to the church and therefore forgiveness is the rule. Forgiveness is the context of my covenant relationship because the context of my covenant relationship with God is based on forgiveness and therefore my relationship with, with my spouse is based on forgiveness period. It's important for us at this place to note when it comes to marriage, and, and I'm hoping I'm changing a little bit of the way that you look at marriage based upon scripture. And I think to continue turning that dial is to recognize this, especially for our younger crowd, uh, is to recognize that marriage isn't a governmental institution. Right? Government may have taken marriage and, and put some things within marriage in our context, but marriage was not created by the government. Marriage was created by God in Genesis. And we need to understand this, secondly, that marriage is not a step in man's evolutionary projection forward. There are sociologists who will say, and scientists who will say, that Marriage is really just a social construct for the uh, progression of human evolution, that we recognize that we're better together. 
And so therefore, since we're better together, then we're going to pair up in opposite sex pairs. That way we can, we can progress quicker and further in the evolutionary scheme of things. And we're going to say, nope. We're going to say God literally, one of the first things came out of his mouth as he's <laughs> recording the beginning of the universe. He's like, let me get it straight. Okay, I created all the universe. So I want to get that out of the way real quick. All this stuff that you see in the world, I made that too. Uh, I made man, I made woman. Oh, and about the fourth or fifth thing down the line, I want you to know I also created marriage. Right? So all of these hard questions that the world is trying to answer is where did the universe come from? How did things get created? What is the purpose of all these things? What is sexuality and what is gender? Answered in the first two chapters of the book. Like we didn't have to get far in this to recognize that God had a design and a purpose for all of these things. Like, and that's why we got to ask the question based on God's original intent. That can apply to many topics, but particularly has to be the first place to go when it comes to marriage. And as we see progressive revelation through scripture that we understand God has revealed himself progressively. It's called progressive revelation that we recognize marriage has always been an institution of God. But as we jump into the New Testament, and even in the Old Testament, we recognize that God uses the marriage covenant often to describe his relationship to Israel. In the New Testament, we see over and over again how Scripture uses marriage and defines marriage in relationship to Christ and his bride the church. And that progressive revelation shows us that that design for marriage in Genesis is really painting this picture in a real worldly situation and real relationships that this is bigger than your relationship with your spouse. This is saying something about the nature and character of God, and we must take that seriously. And because of that, you need to write this down in point number two. Sum it up this way. You need to honor marriage as a reflection of Christ in the church. You need to honor marriage as a reflection of Christ in the church. And as you jot that down expeditiously, after that, I would love for you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. And particularly, if you don't know where I'm going, you better turn there. And even if you're a little foggy about it, turn there. Because until this is nailed into your head, you're not going to have a high view of marriage the way that I believe you should, according to Scripture. You're going to recognize something very clear about Ephesians 5 when it comes to the way that we should see marriage in light of Christ. Starting there in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22. All right, we're going we're going to shoot some facts and then we'll deal with the application later, okay? So no bullets flying early on right here, okay? Wives, submit to your own husbands. We good so far? Okay. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So if I'm going to submit to the Lord in a hundred things, how many things would I submit to uh, my husband in? (laughs) A hundred, right? For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So that relationship there, I'm going to, I'm going to draw the parallel in the analogy. Uh, the husband is the head of the wife, is the covering and the umbrella, both of authority and protection and leadership. In the same way that Christ is the head and the authority and the leadership over the church. And so we, we need to understand that. And in the same way, and it will tell you right here, Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. 
Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in a lot of things to their husbands. Is that what it says there? It's, what does it say? You tell me. Everything. I love it. Now, wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, this is, this is an ideal, isn't it? And it's not an ideal that we, since it's an ideal, the pastor said it, we can throw it out the window. This is an ideal, right? And we know that we have a sinless, perfect Savior who's going to lead the church in perfection. And every time sin is involved within the relationship between Christ and the person or the church, the sin always belongs to the church, right? We know that. Now, often in our marriage covenants, even though we have to, as wives, right, submit in everything to their husbands, we recognize that our husband is not going to be sinless like Christ, which is the friction that you run into in here because God has not given us provision to disobey our spouse with an asterisk, and we'll get to it in a minute, but with the complete expectation that the wife is going to follow the leadership of her husband in all things as she would the Lord. Now, here's your asterisk, okay? Would the Lord call you to do something sinful? Would the Lord call you to do something disobedient and harmful? Okay, so out of those hundred things, would I find anything sinful in the hundred things that God has asked me to do? No. So the asterisk to this is simply, if your husband's asking you to do things that are sinful, we don't do those things. Okay, but this is the rationale of why the only reason I'm having to address this is the, the irony of this whole message. I'm addressing divorce because of the hardness of heart. The reason I'm addressing the fact that you wouldn't submit to your husband and everything is on the basis of a hard heart, right? So in, in the world where we're following after the Lord, the husbands are going to love their wives and never ask them to do anything sinful. And, um, and wives are going to submit to their husbands in all things because they just want to be honoring to the Lord and don't want to do anything sinful. But the heart of the matter is, is even if you're a Christian in here, you still battle the flesh, and so within that concept of flesh, we got to interpret this based on what the scripture actually is saying and then apply it, understanding that we have to understand our sinful proclivities and quell them as we're applying scripture or we're going to apply them all wrong or at worst, completely disregard them altogether. And we can't do that. So therefore, in verse 24, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. All right, wives, take a deep breath. It's the husband's turn. Okay. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So now this parallel reality of my marriage is that as a husband, I'm supposed to reflect the character and nature of Christ in his love, in his self-giving, sacrificial love unto death for his bride. And that's my job. That's a lot, isn't it? Yeah, it's a lot, and that's exactly what you signed up for if you understand what marriage is, right? This is why it's like, well, no, let me move on. <laughs> Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, verse 26 telling you a lot. Verse 26 and 27, we're just going to understand Christ's relationship with his bride. That he might sanctify her. What did Jesus do to, to us? Sanctified us cleansed us by the washing of the water and the word that he might present us to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that we might be holy and without blemish, right? That's the relationship Christ has with his bride. Did you see the self-giving nature of that? The recognition that all of the cherishing and the cleansing and comes from him as the nurturer and caregiver of the soul of the bride. There is 
that all of that is this perfect picture of the relationship of marriage. Am I going to sanctify my wife? Yeah, yeah, in, in a real way, we will sanctify each other. I recognize that, that, that when I'm reading this, this has to transcend past marriage because I'm not, I'm not doing some of these things. I'm not presenting the church in splendor to Christ. That's him. So I got to recognize which one supersedes the, one, the other. Does my marriage supersede the reflection of Christ in the church or does the Christ in the church supersede my marriage? Christ in the church supersedes the marriage. So when I recognize this, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. This Christ in the church is actually the picture, the real picture of what my marriage is supposed to look like. And so as I recognize what is marriage supposed to look like, all I got to look at is a church in the relationship with Christ, a healthy church in its relationship with Christ. So therefore, without blemish, presented to Christ, right? Verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. This is that reality that Jesus uses this principle throughout Scripture when he says, like, hey, you need to love others as you love yourself. Why does he often say that? Because you don't need help loving yourself. Right? And then people say, we can't say that in our culture because people harm themselves. You know why they harm themselves? Because they want to fulfill their own desires in their life. I don't want to get out of that either, but it's the point, like, even things, when we, even things that we do to cause ourselves pain is because we're being selfish and we're making things about us and not about God, okay? And on top of that, we, as men, love our own bodies. I, I, the thing I argue with my wife about most of the time, we don't eat well enough and we don't exercise as much as we should. Why? Because I love myself, you know? And I got to recognize, ooh, you know what? I got to love my wife like I love myself. When I think about myself and my own needs, it's a reminder, according to Scripture, are you thinking about your wife that way? And it's always a convicting opportunity to say, nope. And it reminds me, ah, who, who, who loves his own body should love their wives because he who loves his wife loves himself. Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Gals, you're married in here. How many of you want a husband that cherishes you? One. Okay, all right. This is good. Okay. Everyone turn back to Genesis chapter 2, okay? You want, a, you want a husband that nourishes you and cherishes you, that cares about him the way that he cares about himself? Because you want your husband to care about yourself. You just want him to care about you, too, in that way and perhaps consider you more significant than himself. So even the application of that would be that he would care for you more than he cares about himself. You want that, don't you? That's what Christ does for his church. And so you recognize, husbands, uh, do you want a wife that follows you and trusts in your leadership and does submit to you in a real way? Not because you're domineering, but because you're the protector and leader uh, in her life. Anybody want that? Any husbands in here want that? Man, all right. This is why we're talking about marriage in here this morning. You do want that. You do. Because it's the actual design for marriage. And if you want your marriage to deal and survive with extreme pressure, husbands, you need to lead your homes. Wives, you need to love and follow your husband. Husbands, you need to love your wife and cherish her and nourish her. And wives, you need to trust and the husband's going to nurture you and care for you. And as you do that, you're going to reflect the character and the nature of the church and his, its relationship with Christ. Now, here's the profundity of this. Verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It's like, what? We just we're spending this whole time on marriage, but now Paul's saying this is about Christ and the church. Exactly the point. 
You want to have, how high of a view should you have about marriage? He's talking about Christ in the church. Your marriage reflects Christ and his relationship to the church. So when we start talking about this whole D word, we got to recognize, am I reflecting the reality of Christ in his relationship with the church? Because I recognize that the Christ's relationship with the church is based on permanent holiness and forgiveness. Does that characterize my marriage? Am I living my marriage in light of Christ's relationship with the church revealed through Scripture? And I get at this point we're left with a mass amount of biblical principles, right? We kind of laid out the landscape. I hope that bar for marriage is right there where God intended it in your heart and your mind right now. And now we're left with applying some of this out in principle. Okay, we first need to recognize this. Marriage is a choice. We all agree with that, right? I think very few times is marriage not a choice. And if that ever is, probably not in our culture because it's also illegal. Uh, The reality is marriage is a choice. Your marriage is a choice. You've chosen who you get married to, which helps you understand if if it's here now. God's design for marriage, the reality of marriage is right here. That changes the pool, doesn't it? That pool is a lot smaller. I was swimming in the ocean when it comes to all the fish in the sea. Okay? Now I'm swimming in the kiddie pool in my backyard. And there ain't no fish to be seen right now. Okay? That's not a bad place to sit sometimes. Because when the bar is here, not based upon my preference that she would be prettier than the other. Okay? That's, that's over there. Okay? that your bar for marriage is here, and I am choosing not to marry anyone who would not recognize marriage for what it is designed as a permanent institution by God to reflect Christ in the church. Here. You can't, you can't understand that? We're not getting married. Not happening. Now, when we understand it's a choice, you recognize we save a lot of marriages and a lot of divorces based upon that alone. We haven't even talked about divorce yet, but yet we, how many marriages we saved already? A lot, according to Scripture. We need to recognize that even as Christ speaks about the topic of divorce and remarriage, that he says marriage is a choice. In Matthew 19, you can flip there quickly, but I'm just going to read it. You may just want to follow along. Jesus says, I say to you this, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. It's like, what? Do you hear them? They're like, well, if the only way I can leave my wife is if sexual unfaithfulness occurs, then it's better for man not to marry. It's like disciples. You know, it's like we recognize the disciples. They fall a lot, and the Holy Spirit redeems them. And at Pentecost, they're doing wonderful things. But there's a lot of things they say in the Gospels that show even the nature of their own heart. That they're saying, wait a minute. If, if I can only divorce my wife for sexual unfaithfulness, then, then I shouldn't get married. And it's like, that's our heart. That's the problem in that time that people had such a low view of marriage that they're saying, well, fine, I won't get married then. Because they wanted to do marriage their way and not God's way. And Jesus says, okay, he says, not everyone can receive this saying, right? Not what was said before, but what's about to be said. But only to those whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Without getting into too much detail, eunuchs cannot have sexual relationships. Therefore, within the bonds of the design for marriage, they don't get married. So Jesus is making it very clear. There are some people who will not get married. And there is a plan for people who choose not to get married. Every once in a while, for far-reaching exceptions, someone may not have a choice, but generally, 
You're going to have a choice of whether or not you get married. And Jesus says, let the one who is able to receive the truth that not everyone is going to choose to get married, and as long as you can live with the understanding that you're not going to have sexual relationships because you're not married, uh, that you're going to be confident and running after the Lord without being married, as long as you can come to grips with all those things, then perhaps if you can receive that teaching, then receive it. And by all means, be fruitful for the Lord. Even Paul says, I wish all were as myself. But even so, let men and women come together in marriage, especially if you're burning with lust, then you need to get married. You see, the priority is, listen, marriage is designed for protection. It's designed for intimacy. It's designed to reflect Christ in the church. It's designed for manifold reasons. And it's designed to keep society, as God sees it, at a place that honors him and glorifies him and reflects Christ in the church. And that means for those who do make the choice, that is the choice to be married, there is a command, right? Marriage is a command in Scripture. We saw that in Genesis. And if you're going to choose to get married, the command is this. It's point number three on your outline. You need to tenaciously guard your marriage covenant. Tenaciously guard your marriage covenant. I pray and I expect and I hope that even in your life that there is not a person or a thing that can get in between you and your marriage covenant. And I, and I hope in a really genuine way that the, that bar of saying, well, here's why I wouldn't let anything get in the way of my marriage. I, ho- I hope that it isn't simply because I love them so much. Because they are just so dear to me, I would never let anyone get in between me and, and they. That's a good thing. But I'm going to tell you what, because your heart often is sinful, that's not going to be enough. You know what's going to be Enough. When you say, because God's designed for marriage, because what God says marriage is, because what God says, I'm therefore going to live for marriage the way that he has made marriage. And my my love, I'm going to grow my love for my spouse, but my commitment to marriage isn't based upon my spouse, it's based upon my commitment to the Lord. And I'm going to tell you what, when your commitment is that, then in a very real way, nothing's going to get in the way of your marriage, even yourself or your spouse. Nothing will get in the way of your marriage. You need to tenaciously guard your marriage Hebrews 13.4 says, let marriage be held in honor among all. That's a good scripture to understand, isn't it? The Bible actually says this, that you need to make sure that marriage needs to be held in honor among all people. Not just the married people, the single people in here. Marriage needs to be held in high honor among you. That's a problem often in the church, isn't it? Because the church often doesn't honor marriage singles don't often honor marriage. We try, to pro- we try to prolong the distance between our life and marriage as we can, at least in word, if not in our heart. But the intent is to say God has designed marriage, and it is a wonderful thing, and it reflects realities about him that without marriage, we wouldn't even be able to empirically see some of the characteristics and nature of God in creation. Just how the universe dis- displays characters of God, according to Romans so our marriage is the same thing, and we esteem it. And it says, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Right? There's a judgment connected with those who will not honor marriage and who will live outside of God's design for marriage. All right, there's a final word on divorce. A final word. Right? There are a couple of biblical grounds for divorce and marriage. Adultery, physical adultery, right, is a grounds for divorce. It's an allowance for divorce because of the hard-heartedness of people unwilling to both repent from their adultery and from others unwilling to forgive. There's an allowance 
although it is messy and it's like amputating a body part, do it as necessary and not as the ideal way to live the rest of your life. I don't want to live the rest of my life with one leg and I don't want to live the rest of my life in a situation of divorce. Secondly, abandonment. 1 Corinthians 7 gives us that in verse 15. Like when an unbelieving spouse abandons you, you, are, you should feel the freedom to walk away and leave with no conviction of the fact that you're in sin. There's two things scripture makes it clear that there are biblical grounds for divorce. Now, let me, give you some, let me give you some realities that we need to practice in our life if we are dealing with extreme cases of marital conflict. Separation is ideal in extreme cases. A separation is something we don't even practice in our culture much because divorce is the first thing on the table. Well, divorce. Separation is a very real possibility, and there's actually legal options for physical separation that is not divorce. There are times when physical separation and or financial separation are necessary and encouraged. Did you hear me say that? Necessary and encouraged. There are extreme cases in difficult situations in your marriage where separation is encouraged. It is necessary. For example, I'll give you a couple. In cases of physical abuse or extreme substance abuse, you come counsel with your pastors, we're going to say, get out and separate. Get away from, geographically, separate. Right? And, and if it gets to the point, financially, separate. Right? That, that, that's a real necessary step in difficult marriages. Not to mention, we'll call the police. Okay, that's, that's a real truth of the fact. You come here and abuse is happening, somebody's going to jail. And uh, here's, the, here's the good news of that when we talk about abandonment, when we let Scripture speak for itself. Well, Pastor, you tell me I can't get divorced if abuse happens? Listen, I'm just telling you what Scripture is saying, right? Because if it were up to me, I'd have a low, bo- a low bar marriage too. But I don't. I have a marriage right here. And let me tell you something when it comes to sin and marriage. When it comes to the heart of people, we need to repent from sin. And when I think about, when I look at this, and you recognize even the way God allows our lives uh, and, and corrects our lives through the word of God, I think about even this. If somebody commits abuse, they're going to jail. They go to jail, they have, in effect, abandoned you. They can't care for your needs. They can't, they can't create an opportunity for your home to be taken care of. And if they are unrepentant, as 1 Corinthians says, in that sin, guess what? The church and church discipline treats them as unbelievers. So an unbeliever who is therefore not capable of taking care of your needs because they have made decisions that have separated them from the family and they're unrepentant, guess what that means? Feel, feel free to have the option to leave simply because it meets the requirements for divorce. It allows the opportunity for divorce. But you see, when we let Scripture and the local church is empowered by Scripture actually fulfill in its time the realities of what Scripture sets forth, it always is designed to redeem, to reconcile, to restore, and to protect the flock. And if we will, instead of constructing our own unregulated, uncertified divorces and marriages, if we allow the Bible to tell us what is permissible when it comes to divorce and what the design is for marriage, we're going to find that God is going to be very well suited to take care of you in your heart and your soul in your body, if you will submit to what God's word says. 
And remember, I want to take you to the heart of all this. Right? The problem is the heart. And we have to separate this from the regenerate and the unregenerate. Okay? You have the regenerate person. The problem isn't hardness of heart anymore, you recognize. The problem with a regenerate person is simply the flesh. And because the regenerate heart, empowered by the Holy Spirit, gives us the capacity to overcome sin, we see great hope in struggling marriages within the church, that is, people who are actually redeemed. Because we know that the flesh does not overpower the work of the Spirit and the new heart that God has put in you. And so we don't believe any marriage that has equally yoked believers cannot be restored according to Scripture because of the desire for repentance and reconciliation to reflect the permanence, the holiness, and the forgiveness that entails Christ in the church and husbands and wives. Secondly, it's the unregenerate part. And the unregenerate part, that's the hard part, isn't it? The unregenerate people, and this is why this is a message to the church, because let me tell you something, unregenerate hearts are then paired with the sinfulness of the flesh and have very little hope at all to redeem marriage because it's a problem of sin and not a problem of outward manifestations. Because it's a problem of sin, in an unregenerate person's life, they have no propensity or capacity to overcome sin in their own flesh. Therefore, there's little hope, which is why even in counseling, when we counsel married couples who say they aren't saved or we're always pressing upon them, are you saved? Are you saved? Because here's the reality. If you're not saved and your marriage is a wreck, you got one serious problem, salvation. Right? You come in if you're married problems, and if you talk to somebody out in the community and you talk to a close friend who's struggling with divorce and they're not saved, the first conversation is, do you have a regenerate heart? Because a regenerate heart, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is going to be able to overcome sin and bring things to re- restoration. It's when I don't have a regenerate heart and full of the Spirit where that is going to find itself impossible for me. So we need Christ. If you're unregenerate, you need Christ. If you're regenerate and you're struggling in your marriage, you need Christ, period. A final word on divorced people, who people who are divorced and remarried. I want you to understand, Scripture makes it clear, you need to focus on the marriage you're in. Okay? Right? There, is no, there is no joy in the realities of divorce and remarriage, but there is no allowance even in your heart, to say, well, should I go back to my other spouse? No, no, no. We're not going to forsake one marriage covenant because we've broken another one. What we're going to do, the hope and the reality is, is you're in a marriage covenant that you're in right now, and regardless if you're in it for, because you've committed adultery and sin in the past, or maybe you're the innocent party in a divorce and remarriage in the past, recognize that the marriage you're in right now is where God has you to reflect the character and the nature of him. And you need to highly esteem your marriage. There may be real situations. Maybe even as you've, you've heard this sermon, you're like, I've been ignorant of a lot of that. Great. Repent from those things. Even if you're remarried and you recognize, I really wrecked my last marriage. Repent. Go to God with a contrite heart, with a great uh, desire to repent. Repent from it. Apologize. Move forward in the marriage you are in now to say this is going to be a marriage that I honor and hold in high esteem and not only my marriage but all the marriages for the rest of my life. There is hope and there is restoration even for those who have made mistakes in their past although I would still encourage you the high view that God puts on marriage even sin and ignorance is sin against God and I would just encourage you go to the Lord repent from that and recognize hey I need to learn about what God's view of marriage is so I make sure that I'm living in light of that every day for the rest of my life and that should give you great joy and encouragement that the Lord desires you to walk in a relationship with him and he doesn't desire anyone who's in Christ Jesus to feel condemnation because anyone who's in Christ Jesus therefore there's no condemnation 
All right. The ushers are coming down, and they're going to start passing out the elements of the Lord's Supper.